And the idea is not to, as we would say biblically, take every thought captive to obey Christ, 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, but rather to redirect your consciousness to nothing, essentially. We were not designed by our God to do these kind of things. Uh, we were designed to worship God, to have relationships, to do work. And the idea of merely sitting and doing nothing for long periods of time cuts against the grain of every fiber of our being. Hey guys, welcome to Filter. Our world can be a really confusing place to live in, and what I seek to do on this show is equip you to live with biblical clarity in our chaotic, confusing world. The goal is that you would be able to live in a way that you understand the times that we're in and then face that with clarity from Scripture and live uh, courageously uh, in these times. One of those confusing and sort of chaotic areas of our life today comes from uh, those worldviews that we might call uh, Eastern, the Eastern religions such as Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, uh, spiritual mysticism, and New Age spirituality. You see ideas from New Age spirituality and Eastern religions all over our culture today, whereas it might have been something that used to be seen as fringe today as part of our mainstream culture. You can see this in, uh, in, in places such as uh, practices and uh, endorsements of practices like yoga and meditation and various other things. Well, in order to understand these things well, I've invited a, a returning guest onto the show, Dr. Douglas Grotheis. Uh, Dr. Grotheis is a Christian philosopher and apologist. He is a professor of philosophy at Denver Seminary, uh, and he is the author of multiple books on the question of the New Age spiritualities and Eastern religions. Uh, specifically, what I brought him onto this episode to talk about was an article that he and I both read and, and had a little bit of a conversation together about uh, regarding some of the dangers of meditation that this reporter from uh, Harper's was sharing about in this very in interesting, intriguing article. We talk about that some in this episode. And we also refer to some ideas from some of his books, such as this one that I have here, which is called Confronting the New Age by Douglas Grotheis. Excellent book that I highly recommend. Uh, we dive into topics uh, all over uh, these, these questions regarding Eastern religions, the New Age, uh, yoga, meditation, uh, and how Christians should view and engage these issues in our culture today. This episode was super, super helpful for me, uh, and I just think that a lot of you guys are going to get some great insight and clarity out of it as well. While you're here, would you consider uh, subscribing to the podcast if you've not already? It really helps us out when you subscribe, and it also helps you out because you'll be notified and receive new episodes every time that they are published. Uh, if you'd also like to help us out by liking this video, if you're watching this on YouTube, or uh, if you're listening to this on podcast, if you would rate us and leave a review on whatever uh, podcast platform you're listening to, that helps uh, get the word out to others about Filter so that they can also receive some of this helpful content and some of this biblical clarity. I'd uh, encourage you to check out the show notes for this episode where I link uh, uh, note, uh, where I link to any kind of resources that we talked about from this episode and helpful other resources as well, including some uh, show highlights. And so I'm really excited for you guys to hear from all the helpful insights from Dr. Grote Heights in this episode. So without any further delay, let's jump into my conversation with Dr. Douglas Grote Heiss. Dr. Grote Heiss, welcome to the podcast. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for coming back. You're our first uh, repeat guest. Uh, I had you on several months ago. Uh, we discussed uh, critical theory. Right. And, uh, and so it, it's great to have you back on the podcast. I appreciate that you uh, are joining us again. Um, so we had started talking. We, we had initiated a conversation uh, based on uh, an article that was shared with me that I then shared with you. Uh, it's an article called Lost in Thought by uh by Cortava 
that was published in uh, Harper's. Mm-hmm. And this article is on um, is on some of the dangers of meditation that aren't frequently talked about in our culture today. Even though meditation is uh, is incredibly popular today, you know, for for various reasons, I guess you could say, um, people often aren't uh, uh, told about some of the dangers that go along with it. And so that was Cortava's goal in the article. Um, this is all in the realm of new age spirituality, uh, Eastern mysticism. And this is a topic that you've been writing on, uh, since the 1970s, right? You've been researching and writing since the 1970s. Yeah. Well, pretty late seventies, right? Yeah. Uh, and so you've been writing on this, uh, reading about it consistently since the seventies. What, what is it that's inspired you to dig into this topic and to really stick with it over all these years? Right. Well, these new age ideas or uh, encouragements to meditate, Buddhist meditation, Hindu meditation, and so on, never went away. Um, I was quite interested in this before I became a Christian in the late 19, middle to later 1970s. And I became a Christian in 1976 and went back and looked at Hinduism, Buddhism, and really all the philosophies I was interested in. And I realized that, uh, first of all, there was good reason for me to leave those uh, worldviews and to become a Christian, that the facts and the evidence were on the side of Christianity. And I've spent uh, all these years really trying to put it all in perspective and defending the Christian faith is true, rational, and pertinent to the whole of life. And my early work was about what we called then the New Age movement. Now we'd probably just talk about the new spirituality or maybe just spirituality. And the, the great divide here is between a biblical worldview and biblical spirituality and a view that is essentially Eastern coming out of Hinduism and Buddhism. And the idea there is that our central problem is not sin and rebellion against a holy God that requires a mediator, that is, the Lord Jesus Christ. The essential problem is that we are not aware of this great universal oneness or uh, universal divine being. Mm -hmm. So the idea of meditation broadly speaking, and what is talked about in this article is to uh, basically detach yourself from your normal critical thinking and maybe sit for long periods of time, focus on your breath. Uh, In Hindu meditation, there's chanting, certain postures, certain breathing patterns. And the idea is not to as we would say biblically, take every thought captive to obey Christ, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, but rather to redirect your consciousness to nothing, essentially. Mm-hmm. So if you sit and meditate and stare at a blank wall, which is a form of Zen meditation, or sit and simply try to follow your breath, as they say, and get rid of thoughts, concepts, no words, then, uh, you know, maybe for a short period of time, you might feel relaxed. But we were not designed by our God to do these kind of things. Uh, We were designed to worship God, to have relationships, to do work. And the idea of merely sitting and doing nothing for long periods of time cuts against the grain of every fiber of our being. Now, I think a lot of people do this simply because they are fatigued, they're overstimulated, they are at loose ends with the world because we live in a very overly mediated, overly stimulating environment where mm-hmm. you can be online constantly, entertaining yourself all the time. You know, as Neil Postman said, amusing yourself to death. And after a while, people realize that This way of life is not very healthy. So sadly, instead of Mm -hmm. coming to Jesus and taking his yoke upon them, they go into some form 
of meditation, whether it's yoga or in the case of this article, a woman went to a retreat for Buddhist meditation. But see, biblically, we are meant to, as I said, worship, have relationships, work, and spirituality, biblically understood, is grounded in prayer. Now, it's interesting that the young woman who went to this retreat, who became mentally ill and sadly ended up committing suicide, was told at this retreat not to pray. Mm-hmm. See, if you pray, then you're using concepts and you're communicating to God. That's using your mind. And Paul says we should be transformed through the renewing of our mind, Romans 12, verse 2. And Peter says to be mature in your thinking. And Jesus says in Matthew 7, 7, don't pray in vain repetitions as the pagans do. So you have two different worldviews. You have one worldview, biblical, that God is a creator. We are the creation. There's the maker and the maid. And we are to be in right relationships with God, ourselves, and our neighbor, and the creation. Mm -hmm. And you have this other worldview, which is, well, we need to somehow uh, get rid of our personalities, get rid of our critical thinking, get rid of relationships, and simply be. Simply find this peace and bliss within ourselves. Well, we are not self-sufficient beings. We're creatures. We're made in God's image and likeness. We were made to relate to our Creator and to other people made in God's image and likeness. We're not made uh, to sit by ourselves or with others for hours on end trying to nullify our critical thinking skills. It's just against creation, and it's actually even spiritually dangerous, as this article points out. Yeah. And so in this article, it describes the story of, of a young woman who um, was going through somewhat, I guess you could say, of an, an uh, emotional, spiritual crisis. She was at a transition point in her life, coming out of a relationship, preparing to go into a new career. And so she decided that it would be a good idea during this transition time to go on this uh, meditation retreat. And I think uh, one of the one of the interesting um, observations we can make about this story that's told in the article is how uh, the decision that this woman made to go on a uh, on a Buddhist meditation retreat um, is something that is sort of just taken for granted as so, uh, as fairly normal in our culture today, uh, mainstream that her decision to go on this retreat, while you know maybe would be a step further than what a lot of people would do in terms of a time commitment. Um, the, outside of the time commitment, just the practice itself, I don't think any or most average Americans today would see as that abnormal, which points to how uh, New Age spirituality uh, and these Eastern uh, mystic ideas have become somewhat mainstream today. Uh, the East has uh, invaded the West with these ideas. Can you take us through a brief history of how these ideas came to the West uh, and how they especially became so mainstream as they are today? Right. I try to cover that in my first book, Unmasking the New Age. A short version, let's take it to about the mid-50s, is that a group of people who were called the Beatniks or the Beats, people like Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, and others, Alan Watts, was part of that, uh, were very dissatisfied with Western culture and what they would view as Western religion, mainly Judaism and Christianity. So they looked to the East and they looked to Buddhism and Hinduism as an alternative path. And in the 50s, uh, these were avant-garde ideas. They were very different and strange. Although Eastern religious ideas had been in America for quite some time, even to the middle of the 19th century, with writers like uh, Emerson, Thoreau, Walt Whitman, and others, the Transcendentalists, they were called. And the uh, Theosophical Society was founded in 1875, and that was trying to blend Christianity with Hinduism and Buddhism. And then this flourished even more 
in the early to middle 1960s. Let me just give you one pivotal event. Uh, the Beatles went to study with Maharishi Mahashyogi, who was the founder of Transcendental Meditation. And they had a big photo op. And you see the Beatles, the most popular musicians in the world, uh, dressed in Eastern garb, like you would see someone wear in India. And they're with this guru with the long flowing hair and the robes and so on, and blissful expression on his face. When you think of the global impact of the Beatles, and they're not advocating going to church or praying or reading the Bible, their spirituality is to go east, to go to Maharishi Mahashyogi to learn how to meditate. And you see that in their music, um, like I Am the Walrus. and uh, oh, so many musicians that I was influenced by in the 70s had these leanings or complete embrace of Eastern mysticism or uh, various forms of the occult. I think of Todd Rundgren, uh, Carlos Santana, John McLaughlin, all these folks. And that interested me because I thought this music is so good. I wasn't a Beatles fan, but I did like Santana and John McLaughlin and others, Jimi Hendrix. I thought that maybe there's something inspiring them that I should know about. So I, I started reading, and uh, I didn't do any meditation, really. I tried to do meditation, and it, was, it never worked, thank goodness. I just got bored, and I had, I had no idea what to do. So... Uh, the Lord intervened, and I became a Christian in 1976. But since then, uh, I've seen these ideas of uh, Buddhist meditation and yoga become completely mainstream. Now, yoga is a multi-million, maybe billion-dollar industry, and everyone is agog over Buddhist mindfulness. So people often don't give it a second or maybe even a first thought. It's just, well, I need to calm down, focus center myself. And so I go to a Buddhist retreat, or I take a mindfulness class, or uh, get involved with yoga. And a lot of people don't realize that this is a package deal, that <laughs> these practices are based on non-Christian religions. And uh, I'm not saying all of mindfulness uh, is terrible, uh, simply relaxing and focus, focusing your thoughts. That's one thing trying to transcend thoughts and get beyond the normal workings of the rational mind. That's something else. And that's something that no one should really be a part of. As I said, we're not created to live like that. Yeah. So in other words, the hippies went away, but the new age didn't. Yeah. There's still some, some hippies out yeah. there. Uh, like in Eugene, Oregon and in Berkeley, but mm -hmm. that identifiable movement of the counterculture is no longer here. But yeah. the spirituality that was brought over through Hinduism and Buddhism, let me give you another cultural episode that's important. The uh, Woodstock Music Festival uh, was not opened by a pastor giving an invocation. It was opened by a Hindu guru leading a meditation. You can see the, the shift there, the sea change. Now, that was 1969. But it's not so much that you have identifiable Hindu gurus making pronouncements. You have people assuming this is just the way to be spiritual. Uh, this is a way to take care of yourself, period. Yeah. Yeah, I think that uh, these ideas, which were once uh, very foreign and, and, and strange to the Western mind have now just become a part of the mainstream. Uh, something that many people uh, today, even perhaps even, you know, many Christians today um, are incapable of discerning between uh, what are some of these new age ideas and what is just sort of the uh, accepted common sense, you know, if that makes sense. Um, like for example, the, that meditation is just something to relax you mm -hmm. without the deeper worldview and spiritual uh, implications that come along with it. Um, and uh, this is something that, uh, that Cortova got at in his article. Uh, he pointed out how 
the the Eastern thinkers who were responsible for bringing these ideas to the West in the 1800s. Uh, I think he said they they explicitly talked about how they needed to uh, change the packaging of how uh, yoga, meditation, these different ideas were presented to the Western person to make them more palatable, more uh, more acceptable. And so I think one of the reasons that um, that this is so much in the mainstream in our culture today is because I think it's been somewhat uh, Americanized and uh, made for commercial use. And uh, anything that's turned into commercial use in America can, you know, tend to do pretty well. If <laughs> somebody can figure out how to make a buck off of it. And like right. you said, uh, yoga and meditation is a, a huge market in America. Mm-hmm. Well, that's true because Americans are very interested in how they look and how they feel. I think that's a universal condition, but more so in America with our individualism and tendencies towards hedonism and this culture of wanting to succeed and better yourself. And that's the American uh, boosterism, optimism, can-do attitude. There's a lot that's very good about that. But people can burn out trying to pursue their dream and better themselves and uh, build up their resume, so to speak. I'm an academic, mm-hmm. so I think about that kind of thing. And they can turn to the wrong things in order to find peace and tranquility. And something is very important. Well, actually, let me read you something from this article. Uh, very insightful. And I've been saying this for probably longer than you've been alive, Aaron. But uh, <laughs> The point of Buddhist and yoga meditation is not to feel comfortable with your body. The point of it is to deny your body and escape embodiment, escape physicality entirely, because these worldviews, Hinduism and Buddhism, there are differences between them. There are different schools of Hinduism and Buddhism. But to make a generalization, The idea is not that God created the world, said it was good, created humans in his image, and then humans turned against God, rebelled against him, and there's a fall. There's no no concept of creation or fall in these worldviews. So the idea is, the first of the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism is life is suffering. So, And suffering, secondly, is caused by desire. That's the second noble truth. The third noble truth is The way to get out of suffering, to escape it, is to cease to crave, to cease to have a desire and an attachment to this world. And then they, for the fourth noble truth, have the eightfold way of discipline, which is basically right thinking and right action. But the point of Buddhism is to attain something called nirvana. And nirvana means what's left when you blow out a candle. So if you attain nirvana, you no longer have to reincarnate. You leave that wheel of birth and rebirth according to karma. And you attain this state beyond personality, beyond individuality, beyond thought. That's the goal. So it's actually the reversal of creation. It's like a decreation of the self because the self is enmeshed in this matrix of matter, of life and death and disease and illness. And so you have to transcend it. So let me just read a little bit from this article. The Buddhist ascetics who took up meditation in the 5th century BC did not view it as a form of stress relief. Quote, these contemplative practices were invented for monastics who had renounced possession, social position, wealth, family, comfort, and work, writes David McMahon, a professor of religious studies at Franklin and Marshall College, in a 2017 book, Meditation, Buddhism, and Science. Monks and nuns sought to transcend the world and its cycles of rebirth and awaken in nirvana, an unfathomable state of equanimity beyond space and time or at least avoid being reincarnated as a mountain goat or a hungry spirit in the hell realm underground. In the Pali Sutras, these are scriptures of Buddhism, the earliest Buddhist texts, the Buddha 
discusses meditation almost exclusively with audience of audiences of followers ready to reject all earthly belongings. Quote, generally, meditation is presented as something monastics aspiring to full awakening do, McMahon writes, an activity that is part of a way of being in the world that is ultimately aimed at exiting the world rather than a means to a happier, more fulfilling life within it. Unquote. Just a little bit more. The author of this article says, in other words, mindfulness was not invoked to savor the beauty of nature or to be a more present, thoughtful spouse. According to the Pali Canon, the point of meditation was to cultivate disgust and disenchantment with the everyday world and one's attachments to people and things. Aspiring Buddhists were asked to contemplate the body from head to toe, inside and out, not for relaxation and even less for bodily acceptance, but to bring to full realization its utter repulsiveness, coursing as it is with blood, phlegm, and pus. <laughs> so I think it's always important to go back to the source of an idea. Mm-hmm. So if we're going back to mindfulness, it's rooted in this Buddhist idea of detaching from the world, actually cultivating a disgust of it. Let me give you an example of this from probably the most recognizable Buddhist in the world, the Dalai Lama. Uh, the Dalai Lamas have to be celibate. So the Dalai Lama was interviewed some years ago, and he said uh, he was asked about desire for women. Uh, you're a man. Wouldn't you be attracted to a beautiful woman? And he said, well, when that happens, I just think of the woman as a corpse. Uh, the idea in Buddhism is everything is ephemeral. Everything is passing away. It's called non-permanence or impermanence. Mm-hmm. And think of a Christian view compared to that Buddhist view. Jesus said to watch your mind and your heart about lust. He talks about that in Matthew 5. So he says, uh, take radical steps to deal with that lust against another woman, uh, or if a woman against a man. But Jesus never said that beauty is something to turn away from. Uh, Paul says, uh, think on what is good and pleasant and right. Think on these things. and So you don't want to think on other things. So it's the redirection of desire to what's holy. Desiring God, desiring the coming of his kingdom, desiring the, the gifts and fruit of the Spirit. But see, Buddhism is the ultimate no. It does not teach that there's a good creation that has gone wrong. It teaches that life is suffering. So meditation is a way to pull away from life, to unplug, to detach, and simply uh, extinguish humanity ultimately so you can find all kinds of studies out there about how mindfulness which comes out of buddhism may have uh, positive results in terms of stress reduction but the deeper you go into it the darker it is and this article from harper's which i take to be extremely significant involves interviews with researchers that have looked on the darker side of meditation Mm -hmm. And some of these researchers will say it's not just that a pre-existing mental condition has been awakened through the meditation. Some of them are saying that uh, the meditation itself is unhealthy and can cause profound mental problems. Now, it's a mixed bag, obviously. But from a Christian vantage point, a Christian worldview, as I said, we were not meant to do this kind of thing. We were not meant to uh, empty out and nullify our minds for long periods of time. And when you go back to the roots, and this is also true of Hinduism as well as Buddhism, it's not these meditation techniques were never meant for you to be more peaceful or more flexible or a better spouse or to feel good about yourself. They were meant to extinguish the self. Mm -hmm. And how ironic in 
an individualistic, hedonistic culture, all about self and self-ease. That people would practice a discipline meant to utterly destroy the self. So it's like yeah. both extremes are wrong. Uh, selfish, hedonistic individualism, and then trying to extinguish the self. The Christian view is that you have a self given to you by God, mind and body. You might say soul and body. God created you to be embodied. There's nothing wrong with embodiment with the physical world. Uh, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, the Lord Jesus Christ. The problem is not having a body or being in a material world for a Christian view. The problem is that we have misused God's gifts and we've turned against God and our neighbors. So we need to be reconciled to God through someone totally outside of ourselves, the Lord Jesus Christ coming to earth to live perfectly righteous life, to teach nothing but truth, and to go to a horrible cross to atone for our sin and set us right with God, to restore a relationship, not to end all relationships through self-oblivion. Yeah. So we ourselves, we're individual embodied beings. The issue is the transformation of the self by being forgiven, being justified, and then walking in the Spirit, demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, and to direct our desires, not extinguish them. Uh, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom and its righteousness, and you'll find peace of mind, and you'll have everything that you need. It's an utterly yeah. different view of existence. Yeah, I think it's hard to overemphasize how diametrically opposed the worldviews of Christianity and Hinduism and Buddhism are. Yeah. On every single point, they are the polar opposite. Right. Um, they are. I, maybe. I don't think you can find any common ground. Very even, little. Even, even, in, even in cases of, of morality, it seems as though. Uh, that is an area that we can certainly get into of how uh, there are some very radical implications for ethics and morality in the worldviews of Hinduism, Buddhism, and New Age spirituality. Uh, so even even in terms of morality, where many of the other world's religions, like we agree on some of the more basic you know, moral issues, uh, even here, there's very little common ground. Yeah. Well, you'll find some commonality with uh, the precepts of Buddhism that all the lay people are to abide by. But uh, here's one of them. One of them is utter nonviolence and no killing of any living thing. That's one of the main principles of Buddhism. So, again, there's a denial that it's a fallen world because in a fallen world, sometimes we have to protect ourselves and our family through force, uh, perhaps even lethal force in some cases. And there are such, a, such things as just wars or relatively just wars. So that doctrine of no killing of anything really doesn't take seriously the evils in the world uh, that sometimes have to be resisted with lethal force. So there's a big difference there uh, mm -hmm. between Buddhist ethics and Christian ethics. It might be good for a minute to talk about uh, biblical meditation, biblical prayer, because uh, there's been in the last, I'd say, 30, 35 years, a spiritual formation movement, much of which is good, some of which actually looks a bit more like Eastern meditation than biblical meditation. Some forms of what are called contemplative prayer mm -hmm. uh, involve things like letting go of your thoughts, seeing your thoughts go down a river, and it sounds a little bit more like uh, yoga or Buddhist meditation, which is not good. But biblically, to meditate never means to empty your mind or to merely sit and focus on your breath or focus on a particular posture. But meditation biblically means to savor and dwell on truth. So the Psalms are very significant for biblical meditation. So if you want to 
meditate in a godly way, you might find a place where you're you're relaxed, you can really focus on scripture. And instead of saying, okay, I'm going to read 10 Psalms, and I'll give it 10 minutes. <laughs> you know, the American mentality, doing everything quickly, getting it over with, going to the next thing. Mm-hmm. Well, why not slow down a little bit and read Psalm 139 slowly and maybe pray through verse by verse what we're being told there or take uh, the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 and and really think about what does it mean the meek, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. How am I meek? How am I not meek? So you meditate, you think, you pray, you maybe slow down and really take in those words. And uh, there's a, a spiritual practice called uh, Lectio Divina. Sometimes that can be taken in strange unbiblical directions, but it really means to uh, read Scripture in a way that the Scripture comes into your, your being, not avoiding your mind at all, but you dwell on it, you focus on it, you concentrate on it, you thank God for it, you try to understand it, you never get beyond understanding because it has a meaning given by God through the biblical authors. So you're not jettisoning exegesis or theology or anything like that. Those things are good when they're done well. We need to get to the truth of what God has told us and what he wants us to do and how to live and to experience his love. But uh, once you've got the meaning figured out the best you can, then in a sense you, you dwell in the meaning. And maybe you take a verse and memorize it. Uh, when I became a Christian, uh, it was assumed that we would memorize portions of the Bible. So maybe you memorize a text and then it it speaks to you. Uh, when my first wife, Rebecca, uh, was very ill, uh, we pretty much memorized Psalm 91. And I remember one of the visits to the doctor, she had a staph infection in her hand. It was very serious. This verse came to me, I will be with him in trouble. It just came to me on the way to the doctor. I will be with him in trouble, not I will take him out of trouble, but I'll be with him in trouble. Mm. And I thought, where is that? I think it's Psalm 91. So we spent a lot of time reciting and memorizing Psalm 91, which has to do with divine protection. So, you know, when we got the word that this strange problem in her right hand was a staph infection, uh, we didn't go sit and meditate for three hours. You know, we we prayed and uh, we sought help for that. Yeah. Yeah. I have an episode uh, on, of this podcast on biblical meditation. So I'll, I'll be sure to link that in the show notes for our, our listeners who want to yeah. listen to that. Um, and I, you already touched on this, that there are some of these forms of transcendental meditation, or they might be repackaged as contemplative prayer, which are present in the American church today. Um, could you dig into that a little bit further just to help some of our listeners who are thinking, yeah. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to go off into the wrong direction here. Uh, can you help give us some discernment? Uh, yeah. Maybe point out uh, what are some practices and beliefs that you see in the church today that we should be discerning and wary about. Uh, maybe even you know I don't, I don't like name calling, but you know are there some are there some specific teachers that people should be uh, discerning and, and careful with? Um, can Can you help us to you know examine carefully? the American church today for, uh, for these beliefs and practices? Well, uh, they are out there. For example, several years ago, a group of elders from a local church asked me to come in and talk to them about yoga because someone in their church wanted to teach so-called Christian yoga. And I advised them not to do that because the origins of yoga go back to Hinduism, the point of it is to find the divine within the self. And even if there are some helpful postures that could limber you up and help you feel more peaceful, you could find that through other physical disciplines. And yoga means to be yoked. It means to uh, find the divine or the sacred within yourself somewhere or another. And the elder board, I think, wisely told this woman that, no, she shouldn't. They would not sponsor her teaching. 
yoga class. Um, Sarah Geis and I wrote a piece in a theological journal, what, 2015. Uh, the journal's called Bibliotheca Sacra. Maybe you could link that also about contemplative prayer. And it is a very mixed bag. Uh, there are some people whose teachings I would simply avoid. And I'll name some names. Scripture names names about people who are in error. Thomas Keating mm -hmm. uh, really has more of a Buddhist worldview than a Christian worldview, even though I think he's a Roman Catholic priest. Um, the basic problem with contemplative prayer is the notion of letting go of your thoughts. Uh, accepting everything, simply uh, going with the flow of the universe. You'll find this kind of thing in another uh, Roman Catholic thinker named Richard Rohr, uh, who is very bad news, very bad news. He recently wrote a book called The Universal Christ, which I reviewed, and He's either a pantheist, everything is one, or a panentheist, everything is in God. And he says things like, you've never been separated from God. Christ didn't die on the cross to atone for your sins, to pay the penalty, to take God's wrath for us. He denies those kind of things. Uh, and he's also very much a proponent of something called the Enneagram, which is just... Mm -hmm. You could do a whole show on that. I wouldn't be the person, but you should do a whole show on the Enneagram, and I can give you references for who can talk about that. So uh, people want to pursue a deeper spirituality, and there are legitimate practices uh, like uh, biblical meditation, uh, a right view of Lectio Divina. Eugene Peterson's book called Eat This Book is actually, I think, solid on that. Some of the other ones mm -hmm. don't. They aren't. But the idea of somehow getting beyond the rational mind. Uh, let me give an example. Many years ago, I was at a faculty retreat, and someone was trying to lead us in a guided meditation. And this person said something like, suspend your critical faculties. And I turned to the person next to me who was a distinguished professor of church history. And I said, I don't think God ever wants us to suspend our critical faculties. You know, this just goes against biblical anthropology, biblical spirituality. Moreover, uh, there is a demonic realm. There are invisible spiritual entities led by Satan and the demons under Satan, the fallen angels. Jude talks about that. Second Peter discusses that also. And really, if you uh, suspend your critical faculties and you try to nullify your thoughts, then that can be the devil's playground. Because we need to be alert, Peter tells us. Be alert, because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, mm. seeking someone to devour. And then Paul says in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen that Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Mm -hmm. and his ministers as ministers of righteousness. So we need to, as First John 4 says, test the spirits to see whether or not they are from God. And that test is, who is Jesus? So our prayer, our meditation should be focused on the one mediator between God and man, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, and savoring him, and learning to trust him, and worshiping him, and taking his yoke upon us. That's a biblical spirituality. Yeah. Yeah, I'd like to get into some of the spiritual warfare side of this. Uh, before we do that, I do want to uh, just spend a, a, a little bit more of a moment on uh, the uh, the church in this and ask sort of the, the positive side of the question that I asked before, which are, which I so who should we be discerning about cautious of or even reject uh, on the positive side who are some uh because you said there are some spiritual formation writers and content out there that is that is good and helpful so where can people find that who are some of those writers uh what would you recommend well i think a good source 
would be my friend J.P. Moreland, who's a very high-level Christian philosopher and apologist. He has a book out called Finding Quiet. And J.P. admits he's had some profound psychological struggles. He had two nervous breakdowns, and he had to learn how to find quiet in the Lord. And uh, J.P. is as rational and thoughtful as you can imagine. But he gives us some some ways of uh, trusting God more fully. And he talks about some contemplative prayer um, disciplines, but I don't find them to be anti-intellectual or spiritually dangerous. A lot of it just has to do with uh, slowing down and maybe uh, thinking about the Lord being present with you and just enjoying his presence and so on. So I might have a couple of uh, quibbles or qualms with JP, but he's extremely solid, and he's not going to take you down the road of a Buddhism or Hinduism or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So that book called Finding Quiet. Yeah. So it sounds like what he's saying about contemplative prayer is different in that uh, it's more about some, you know, the practicality of putting yourself into a, an environment and a mindset where you can focus on God's word and then, uh, and then actually being open to experiencing his presence with you. Right. And right. That's what you're saying. And you always have to test that against scripture. Mm-hmm. So let's say I'm, I'm relaxed. I'm thinking about the Lord. I'm meditating on a scripture. Maybe I'm just thinking about, uh, the Lord being within me, you know, and, and thinking about the Lord being in my heart, literally my heart. And then I have this thought that seemed kind of strange. Well, you test it against the Bible. You don't say, well, I had this warm, wonderful feeling while I was praying or meditating. Therefore, it must be of the Lord. No, no, that's that's dangerous. So it's yeah. got to be head and heart to oversimplify things. But Yeah, and that's what JP would say too, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I like his work and other folks just, don't have a rigorous biblical, theologically sound worldview, so they they drift off uh, into dark places, and you know this can really be dangerous, as I mentioned, because we are to take every thought captive to obey Christ. We're to be transformed through the renewing of our minds. We're to be alert and awake and prayerful. And if you put your mind in the neutral, uh, you know, think of, think of an old gear shift. I think Americans are always in overdrive most of the time, and then they, they burn out, and so they go, they go into neutral. Well, maybe you just need to go down to third or second or first, <laughs> settle yeah. down, slow down, but not neutral. neutral. There's no neutral in the Christian spiritual life. So... We want to engage ourselves, our emotions, our minds, our imaginations, engage those in fruitful biblical patterns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So any other uh, resources on spiritual formation you recommend? Well, there's a book uh, that came out a number of years ago by James Sire called Habits of the Mind, which is very solid because Thinking well for the Lord is a spiritual discipline. Study is a spiritual discipline. I tell my students that I teach at Denver Seminary that even when they are struggling with fatigue and worry in their studies, if they're learning more about God, then that is a spiritual discipline. So don't think, well, I have my seminary studies analytical, intellectual, writing papers, giving talks, and then I have my spiritual life, prayer, meditation, worship. No, your study is a spiritual discipline. It ought to be a spiritual discipline that you offer unto the Lord. I told a student many years ago who was studying Hebrew, uh, who was worried about it, who's complaining about it. He said, I spent all these hours working on a Hebrew text, and I didn't feel renewed or refreshed at all. And I said, did you learn something new about the Bible? Yes. I said, well, then you learned something about God, so you were spiritually edified. You didn't feel any goosebumps. You didn't feel happy. It's hard. 
doing Hebrew exegesis in the original, you know, in the original language of the Old Testament. Uh, but did you learn something about God? Yes. Well, then that's good. And that was a spiritual discipline. So this book by James Sire, Habits of the Mind, is quite good. Yeah, excellent. And I think that's such good news for a lot of people. Uh, I think that some people, because of uh, because of the influence of our culture rather than the scripture, they think that if they don't have that goosebump experience that you're talking about when they read their Bible or they sing and, and worship, whatever it might be, or listen to a sermon, that they're not experiencing God uh, or growing closer to him. Uh, and so I think that that can be really good news for, for a lot of people. I know that that's something that's always been great news for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, um, so that's great. So well, let's talk about that spiritual warfare side of, um, of new age spirituality. Uh, whenever I was preparing and, and researching on this, um, you know, I was really, I, I was really surprised at how, uh, the leading thinkers are, uh, well, maybe you're not allowed to call them thinkers, right in the new age uh but but the the leading voices i guess i i should say uh in new age spirituality uh don't hide their cards uh in this area because they'll openly discuss and even promote channeling uh some some entity that they're receiving enlightened knowledge from uh so do you want to talk to us about that 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 side of this and the danger that dabbling in these practices poses right well it could be that you put your mind in neutral and then you are opening yourself up you're making yourself vulnerable to malicious spiritual influences but that wasn't your purpose but it happens to you some people deliberately pursue contact with supposedly higher immaterial invisible spiritual beings Mm-hmm. So they talk about channeling some being. Channeling was very big in the 1980s, and I wrote about it in uh, my book, Confronting the New Age. I've got a whole chapter also on... No, channeling, I wrote about that in my book called Jesus in an Age of Controversy. I think I touched on it in Confronting the New Age. And in Confronting the New Age, I have a chapter on the spiritual dangers of these new age practices but some people will claim to have contact with these spirits this used to be called uh, mediumship you had people like uh, edgar casey who was called the sleeping prophet he would go into a trance and say things that contradicted the bible right and left yeah and you have any number of people who claim to be conduits of this transcendent spiritual wisdom Sometimes people even claim to be speaking for Jesus. Uh, There is a book, actually a three-volume set, called A Course in Miracles, that supposedly was channeled directly from Jesus. This was written in the 1970s. The woman that was the receptor, supposedly, of this great wisdom was named Helen Shookman. And she influence this book influenced marianne williamson uh, who's been teaching this for over 30 years very popular author and she ran for president uh, yeah. this last time i and thought the name was familiar yeah and yeah. amazingly even though she didn't get very far uh the new yorker magazine and the new york times took her seriously mm-hmm. they wrote articles about her it wasn't just here's some weirdo out there who's running for president but you know, she represents spiritual interests in our culture, and she aspires to high office. We need to take this seriously. So, uh, biblically understood, uh, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, dependent on the Lord, and realize uh, that we're in a battle. So, I think especially of, of Ephesians 6, that speaks of, Paul says, put on the full armor of God. And you didn't put on armor to go to the beach. You know, you didn't put on armor to go to an amusement park. You put on armor for warfare. So it goes through the whole armor of the helmet and the sword and the breastplate and the belt and the shield, the shield of faith that can extinguish all the flaming 
darts of the evil one, and then the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So we need to put on that armor every day and be very careful because, um, as I said, your enemy, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion. Satan masquerades as an angel of light. Uh, You see Jesus doing battle with Satan in the wilderness before he begins his public ministry, Luke 4, Matthew 4. And the way that Jesus dealt with Satan was with Scripture. So the way to repel and protect yourself against dark spirits, demons, is to know the Scripture and to maybe even recite the Scripture. Remember, when I was a very young Christian, I was uh, witnessing to someone, someone I didn't know. And uh, I just kept thinking, greater is he that is within you than he that is within the world. I memorized that in the Revised Standard Version many years ago, but it's First John 4, 4. Greater is the Lord within you, the Lord Jesus Christ within you, than the one who is in the world. And John means Satan and the demons underneath him. So we need to remember our identity in Christ, uh, the power of God, the Word of God, which is the sword. Uh, The Word of God is living and active, actually sharper than any two-edged sword, Ephesians 4.12. But realize that we are in a battle. Now, we're not fighting people. We're to love people be gentle and have respect with people. But there are these demonic beings. There are what Paul calls doctrines of demons, like channeling, like karma, like reincarnation, doctrines of demons that deceive people and turn them away from the living God to falsehood and to dangerous practices. And I think we need to remember what the Lord said, that um, what is it if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? What is it if you feel peaceful and restful doing meditation, but you're not repenting before the Lord Jesus Christ? Um, I've long said that someone could meditate themselves into complete bliss, complete happiness, complete detachment from all things, and still be a sinner before a holy and righteous God. So their spiritual condition, objectively conceived, theologically understood, is no better whatsoever than if they were overwrought, anxious, nervous, addicted to everything else. (laughs) The issue is our relationship to God. Do we have a mediator? Paul says there's one God and one mediator between God and human beings, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. There's no other name under heaven given to all humanity by which we must be saved. Acts mm-hmm. 4. So yeah. truth, truth and the power of the Spirit uh, are the ways of dealing with darkness. And there's no need to fear. Uh, you might say, you have a respect for the powers of darkness. That is, you take them seriously. But uh, Jesus said, uh, in this world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. We know that because of his work on the cross and his resurrection, his ascension. He is at the right hand of the Father, and he is our advocate, and he is making intercession for us. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that we can also highlight, too, that whenever we're talking about this kind of spiritual warfare that comes about because of these ideas uh, or or through these ideas, um, we're not talking just about uh, extraordinary phenomena, you know, uh, like like what some of these these new age channelers would do whenever they would they would write volumes of work while they were seemingly, you know, unconscious or, or whatnot being. You know, we're not, we're not just talking about those things, but we're also talking about just, um, you know, people who are uh, convinced that uh, that they are their own God. Uh, this inevitably leads to, uh, to self-deification. Um, people who are convinced that they can 
uh, impose their own internal will from their true self upon reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that we, we, we see that all over the place in America today. Um, uh, perhaps the most dramatically, we see it in the transgender ideology, uh, which, which as I, was, I couldn't help but think about as I was reading about this because uh, the ideology says that one can look within themselves, uh, discover their true selves, and then once they become one with that and express it the most, then they can impose it on reality, which, which to me sounds like new age theology. Uh, and so when we talk about spiritual warfare, we're talking about all of these things. Well, ultimately, we're dealing with light versus darkness. You see that theme, especially in John's writings, truth versus error, and Christ versus Satan. And uh, Christ is Lord. It's not that the world is divided up. Christ has half the power. <laughs> Satan has half the power. That's dualism. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus is Lord of the entire universe, and all things are under his feet. However, there is a resistance movement, so to speak, and that is the devil and his fallen angels. But uh, we can take heart that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Christ, and we are to disciple the nations on that basis. Now, you know, maybe we could do a whole a whole talk on transgenderism, or maybe you've already done one, but one of the interesting and sad ideas of transgenderism is that your body has no normative force. That is, your body is really not a significant part of your identity as it was given to you at conception and when you came into the world through birth. Mm-hmm. It's that somehow you, there's something different from your body that can decide the kind of body you want. So you're not working within a given form and structure uh, to be the best person in your body you can be. Rather, the body is viewed as something that is correctable and not just like taking out a tumor, you know, or having eye surgery because you have a defective eye, but even changing your gender. And so there's this weird separation of the self from the body, and then the body viewed as a mere instrument that I can alter and even, I'd say, mutilate Mm -hmm. according to my desire. I could see someone trying to spiritualize that, you know, that, uh, that I am my own reference point. I have the sacred within myself. So who are you to say I shouldn't change my body because it's my body and I have my own spiritual path. And that's the way of transgenderism. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know if they would be directly related or, or if there's direct causality, but I can't help but think that, um, that the preponderance and the spread of new age thinking uh, created the conditions for the transgender ideology to be more easily accepted. Um, so, you know, we're running out of time here, but uh, just before we go, are there any last things you want to say to Christians um, to help them to be discerning and confront the new age when they see it? Know the scripture, uh, be aware of the spiritual battle that's going on. Um, Not to blow my own horn, but I think uh, some of my work on the New Age movement that dates back to the 80s, still helpful. The same basic ideas and the same practices that I wrote about and against then are, are here now. Basically, the ideas are the same, the practices are the same, it's just some of the names have changed. So uh, Shirley MacLaine was very big in her emphasis on karma and reincarnation. She's not as big in the whole thing anymore, but we have other people, new people that are coming along and essentially saying the same thing. So I wrote a book called Unmasking the New Age in 1986, another one called Confronting the New Age in 1988. I think those could still be helpful for people. Uh, A ministry that keeps up with these things would be the Christian Research Institute. I've been writing for their journal now for about 35 years, the Christian Research Journal. They keep up with the new spirituality, Eastern thought, various cults, 
false secular philosophies, I would definitely look at their webpage, uh, subscribe to their journal. So know what you believe and why and put on the armor of God and do exploits for the kingdom of God. Excellent. Exhortation there. Yeah. Excellent. Great. Well, you know, we've mentioned a lot of different resources, not, not just the ones that you just gave us, but we've mentioned a lot in this episode. Uh, and I'll be sure to include all those in the show notes for people who are listening articles to, uh, I'm sorry, links to, uh, to everything we've been talking about books, uh, the Harper's article that we discussed so that, uh, people can go and find all this information and, uh, dig even deeper to it. But, um, Dr. Grotheis, I just want to thank you so much for spending your time with us today. Uh, I know it was incredibly helpful and insightful for me. I'm sure will be to our listeners as well. So just thanks for your time today. Thank you for joining us. Well, you're welcome. And thank you for having me here. Thanks for listening. I hope this episode provided you with biblical clarity to live with confidence in our confusing world. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from me, you can go to my website, aaronchamp.com. While you're there, subscribe to my newsletter so that you can be updated anytime I share new content. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Aaron M. Champ. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Until then, hold fast to the anchor.